Hello, I am Dr Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research at the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before, to share their work, ideas, and most importantly, their unfounded opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines, into the evidence behind them, and most interestingly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform, and don't forget to leave a review. If you have something to share or would like to come on the podcast, find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. Okay, it's fantastic to be back here recording this second Don't Just Read the Guidelines podcast with Alex Rampottis. Alex is a haematology registrar um, down in Oxford, but is um, shortly moving into research to work on CAR T-cells. So CAR T-cells are a new immunotherapy that involve taking patients' T-cells, re-engineering them to express a receptor that can target specifically cancer cells, hunt them down and kill them. Um, The early CAR T cells have shown immense promise, uh, especially in B cell malignancies like DLBCL and acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Um, And they've essentially cured patients who were otherwise refractory to treatment. So without further ado, we'll move on to the podcast. And as I'm sure you'll see Alex is an incredibly eloquent speaker he explains things things really well and this is a really lovely conversation to listen to hi Alex welcome to don't just read the guidelines hello yeah thanks for inviting me um so there's a couple of things to uh talk about today really and uh the first one is uh not as interesting as the second one Oh, so you told me anyway. Um, we're gonna we're gonna have a nice long discussion about the future of CAR T cells, which I'm really excited about. Um, but firstly, you've done a national audit on red cell transfusion, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I have to say, the transfusion. I mean, it can be it can be quite interesting. And actually, the way it affects uh, many specialists across the field affects A and E, affects surgery. So I think it's something that uh, that uh, should be in anyone's list of things to get involved, uh, because uh, the actual impact you make is, is quite big. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this was uh, this was actually an idea that uh, Professor Mike Murphy in Oxford and Kate Broger, another registrar in Oxford, had uh, to see if patients with anemia, uh, when they present on uh, on the acute setting like A and E or an MAU or something like that, if they're investigated for that anemia, uh, and if if they are not investigated, if that has an impact on future uh, transfusions, if they get more transfusions as a result of under investigation uh, because as you know with the pressures on A&E or to free up beds sometimes things like a mild anemia in an 80 year old may be missed uh, so that, that that was the idea and they did a small pilot audit in Oxford and uh, then we want to see what, what 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 the outcome is what the numbers are across the UK. Uh, I guess you were expecting that practice would be less than ideal 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that would be like your your like uh, gut feeling when you when you start thinking about your days as an SHO on A and E. Uh, and how busy things are. Mm. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And I think the Himstark Network was was an excellent opportunity to do that because it gives us this ability to take a small idea and roll it out across the UK using this amazing network of registrars, the promotion that the Himstar uh, provides. So that, that was a, a great tool to use. So just tell me the headlines about the project. How many patients were involved? Yeah. How many centres? And what, what did you find? Yes, it was around uh, a little bit more than uh, 800 patients, so very, yeah, very decent number. And around 200 of those, a little bit less than 200, their anemia was was not immediately obvious what what was caused uh, by. And uh, so these are the patients that ideally they should have been investigated, uh, investigated uh, to an extent that before their discharge, there is a good plan uh, to treat their anemia. Uh, Actually, the, the primary endpoint of what we're trying to see if less investigations leads to more transfusions uh, that wasn't something that we verified with this audit uh, while in Oxford uh, that seemed to be the case across the UK uh, it wasn't it wasn't uh, replicated uh-huh. however there have been some important findings uh, from, from this uh, study uh, one of the finding was that uh, 19.2% of the cases they received inappropriate transfusions and when I say inappropriate uh, we usually have some thresholds because you don't want to give a blood transfusion to someone that doesn't really need it because there are risks associated with transfusion of blood products and there are some thresholds for that so in 19.2 percent of the cases uh, these thresholds uh, were breached uh, so the patients could have avoided a necessary transfusion and uh, for the patients that their anemia wasn't uh, the cause of their anemia wasn't uh, known uh, half of them uh, they weren't investigated properly and uh, we use uh, we use some uh, guidelines and some standards from various transfusion societies that actually they, they are not very strict they don't ask mm. for like extensive investigations they just ask for like normal stuff like if you have a microcytic anemia to be referred to a gastroenterologist to see if you have a bowel cancer yeah. or if you have a macrocytic anemia to be investigated for hemolysis so things like that and in half of the cases uh one of these investigations w- w- weren't done i don't know about you i feel like there's there's an acceptance of anemia sometimes that it's almost just a normal part of aging which it absolutely isn't um clearly some aspects of anemia diagnosis are fairly easy but i mean 19% of patients having inappropriate transfusion to me sounds sounds very high. I mean, why do you think it's so hard for us to get this right in the NHS? Yeah, I think it goes back to our initial point that transfusion affects so many specialities and it's usually the very junior doctors that they they will handle a case on the accidents and emergencies or on, on any other acute setting. Mm-hmm. And also surgeons get involved quite a lot with transfusion decisions. And uh, I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong in that, but I don't think there is a lot of focus during their training on the risks associated with transfusion or, or around guidelines 
plans regarding the Dutch fusion. I may be wrong, and I'm sure things are changing, and I'm sure the UK is way better than other countries. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I, I think it's it's something that affects our specialty. So there aren't many transfusion doctors taking those decisions. Yeah, it certainly looks like transfusion trends in the UK are erring towards less blood product use, doesn't it? Um, so I think that you're right. Things probably are improving, but 20% yeah, in appropriate transfusions does does sound quite high. I think it's quite worrying that people aren't wanting to investigate people as as well. I, I wonder whether it's time or lack of knowledge. I mean, do you have any thoughts? Uh, I think it's it's uh, the pressures for things to get moving. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure. About, I mean, I, I can't say because we didn't collect those data. Yeah. But uh, but I, I think that all we can agree that with the four-hour rule on A&E, things need, need to move on quite quickly. So writing a referral letter to for the gastroenterology clinic yeah. takes, I don't know, 15 minutes. So it's not something you can do on your feet when you're seeing a patient on A&E. Okay, fair enough. Well, that's uh, enough for transfusion. Now we'll move on to something that's, I guess, related to transfusion. And transfusion services do get do get involved with these, and that's CAR Ts. Um, I don't know about you. I think this is <laughs> one of the most exciting aspects of medicine. Part of the reason I got into immunology and hematology in the first place. Um, I'm very jealous that you're going to be doing a PhD on CAR T, <laughs> and I'm scrabbling around for research funding um, to do something completely different. So, uh, massively well done. Um, at getting some research funding for for a project so um we'll go on to the project in a, in a little bit but i mean i could i could go i could th- talk talk about car t's for forever um yeah. but maybe just want to explain what a car t cell is yeah um, thanks richard very yeah, briefly no. <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm very excited about car t's and i think one of the reasons i went to hematology as well was the I, th- I think it was 2013 i graduated in 2014 in 2013 the front page of the journal science was i think something like immunotherapy and the attack and it was when they they rea- everyone realized that how how such, such a useful tool is the immune system in our fight against cancer uh so yeah let's talk about i think CAR T's are like, should be exciting for anyone, even outside medicine. I think that they're just brilliant. They're just amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to go back to the AIDS pandemic because I think it was a tipping point. So I think in the 80s, when we had, unfortunately, the AIDS pandemic, we saw that patients, that their immune system is immunocompromised, when, when the immune system is hampered, when it's compromised, they get more cancers, they get more lymphomas. And there was a huge amount of funding going into, into, the, into research about the immune system, about the T cells, about the B cells. And, uh, and that was mainly because AIDS was an was something that affected the West, where where all the funding is, and it is what it is. Uh, so the development was was very rapid in terms of our understanding of the immune system, and it was in 1993 when the first CAR T product was developed. So what what, what is a CAR T? Uh, so essentially, you take the T cells from uh, from anyone, a human T cell, and you engineer it. You're using a virus to insert a gene so that it expresses a receptor, a specific receptor that would target whatever you want, essentially. And uh, the thing that you want is is ideally a cancer antigen, a cancer antigen that is important for cancer survival. So the cancer needs that antigen to survive. It's present on the cancer surface 
and it's not present in any, in any other normal cells. So you create the T cell that's the best killing machine against cancer cells. And more importantly, you target whatever you like. It's not, it's not predetermined whether you just pick something and then you go after it. So that, that was the idea and that was developed in 1993, but it didn't work. It didn't work. And in science, things don't work very well sometimes, even though the theories are very good. So it was in the early 2000 when the understanding of how a native T-cell, a normal T-cell works became even, even better, that they realized how important it is to have uh, what we called co-stimulation. So essentially, when a normal T-cell will go and find its target, there are a brake and a throttle pedal that they will, they will adjust its immune response against that cell that it identifies. Because otherwise, if it was just identifying something that looks, looks, uh, looks malignant or looks uh, like a virus, then you, you will end up with autoimmunity. You need to have some checks in place. And those checks are very important. So the core stimulation is hugely important for that T cell to expand and persist and do the killing when it identifies its target. So when that core stimulatory uh, molecule was, was incorporated into the receptor, the CAR construct of the CAR T, that was the tipping point to make the CAR T successful. Then they were able to persist, they were able to do a lot of killing, they were able to expand, to proliferate, and, and they worked brilliantly. Uh, and and, and then that's, that, that was probably we're heading towards 2010 when the first trial started. Um, and I mean, I don't know, I, I don't want to go on for, for too long. I don't know if you want to comment on any of those. <laughs> I could listen to you talk about that forever. You're so eloquent, so much better than me talking about CAR T cells. I always get into the minutiae and, and uh, I find it very difficult to explain, but I think that's a very good explanation. Um, I, yeah, I was at a conference, I think 2011, and saw a talk from Carl June, who's uh, one of the, the grandfathers of the clinical work on CAR T. Um, and he continually tours the globe doing um, talks and happily shows this picture of Emily Whitehead, who was one of the first CAR-T mm. patients as, as she gets older. So, I mean, for, for the listeners who, who maybe haven't followed the CAR-T story, um, the first products that have come to market really are, are looking at B-cell lymphomas and acute lymphoblastic lymphoma, uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, sorry. Mm. Um, and essentially these, these therapies are salvaging or saving patients who would otherwise have died. Um, and it's a real breakthrough in medicine to take patients who are multiply refractory and relapsed after chemotherapy treatments and allogeneic stem cell transplantation, which is another immensely powerful immunotherapy, taking these patients and, and miraculously curing their disease. And the whole thing gives me shivers. You know, it's, it's, it's a huge step forward. Um, clearly with all step forwards, they take little baby steps, but the, the, the whole, the whole, um, the whole thing of CAR T cells is just a massive step forward for medicine. I, th I think it's going to revolutionize the future of medicine in general um, because there are other applications other than just cancer. Um, I mean, how, how, how do you feel about it? Uh, I think, sh should we talk a little bit about how an allogeneic transplant works? Because I think CAR T is, is like emulating uh, an allogeneic transplant without all the associated toxicities. Yeah, sure. Uh, 
I don't think many people know that, at least many non I think non-hematologists don't know exactly how neurogenic transplant works. So obviously you, you need the patient to be in remission. So when we say remission, we say we don't we mean that we don't see any malignant cells under the microscope. But actually we know that there are some malignant cells uh, being somewhere hiding in the body. So what you do, you use chemotherapy to 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 remove to like to to kill all the to eliminate all the native bone marrow and then you replace it uh, with the bone marrow from a donor and although this bone marrow is fully matched in terms of the HLAs we match it against 10 HLAs major HLAs that we know about uh, there are some small differences what we call the micro HLAs so the, the minor details that makes us different between each other and uh, this new marrow, and especially the T cells and the NK cells, because of those differences, they will find those differences on the remaining leukemia cells, and they will eliminate them because they will recognize them as foreign. And uh, this is what we call the graft versus leukemia effect. Uh, obviously, and probably many of our listeners will will listening to that, they will think, okay, so why don't they recognize the rest of our body micro differences? And they do, they do. And that's why we have toxicities. That's what we call the GVHD, the graft versus host disease. So with the same mechanism, they will cause problems in the skin and the gut uh, associated with GVHD. The same mechanism is what causes, what, what induces the GVL and the, and the targeting of the leukemia cells. So CAR T cells is essentially emulating, they're emulating this phenomenon by taking the T cells only and making them target just the malignant cells because you can make them target whatever you like. So the only limitation essentially for the CAR T's is to have good targets. And uh, we have been really lucky with, uh, with B-cell lymphomas and acute lymphoblastic leukemia because the target that we're going after is the CD19. And this is very intelligent because CD19 is a very important uh, receptor, it's a very important uh, uh, molecule for, for B-cells, so that it's hard to live without the CD19 if you're a B-cell. And it's also expressed on the surface. Uh, but it is also present in normal B cells. So this is one. So the three principles that we discussed about, one of them uh, is, is not is not um, is not respected. However, you can live without your B cells. So even if your CAR is kill all of your normal B cells, as long as they kill your malignant B cells, you can still live, and you we can do antibody replacements with IVIG infusions and all that. So many kids, uh, it's it's more um, specific for kids that they have this therapy, they end up on IVIG replacement, but that's fine. They still can live a healthy life as long as their leukemia is cured. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um... I mean, I, I I know you've drawn parallels between allogeneic stem cell transplant and, and CAR-T. I mean, clearly they've come from a similar um, stem, i.e. immunotherapy, but as you've alluded to, CAR-T is, is a heck of a lot cleaner. I mean, do you think CAR-T will eventually replace allogeneic stem cell transplant? I mean, clearly with myeloid, myeloid links, this is much more difficult, isn't it? Yeah, 
Yeah, I think so. I will draw another parallel, and I hope I'm not confusing the the listeners too much. Uh, and I will go back many years ago to tuberculosis. So tuberculosis now treated with a cocktail of un- antibiotics. Uh, we usually use three or four antibiotics. So back in the old days, it was recognized that it's caused by by the mycobacterium, uh, but uh, using one antibiotic wasn't enough because uh, the bacteria were clever enough to 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 evolve and and uh, and become resistant to that that single antibiotic. So they used two and two antibiotics weren't enough. So when they used three, it was too much for a bacteria to evolve uh, to become resistant to three antibiotics at the same time because it would require three mutations happening at the same time to become resistant to three antibiotics. And that is how tuberculosis was cured. And uh, I think it's probably, probably we're facing the same problem with cancer, especially with solid tumors, uh, because in solid tumors, uh, their, their genome is far more complex and the, the targets are that we have more targets for solid tumors in most of them, but those targets are not very essential for the cancer survival. So if you target epidermal growth factor, for example, uh, that is apparently, apparently expressed in a solid tumor, they can easily downregulate that and still survive. So they can escape if you target one thing. So what you really need is a CAR T that can target two or three cancer neoantigens, uh, and uh, and uh, that would make very hard for for the cancer to 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 do clonal escape and to have three mutations at the same time to avoid the killing of the of the CAR T cell. Do, do you think B cell malignancies are going to be a um, a lone um, success story for dual, single targeting CAR T? Then do you think that's going to be the only malignancy we can cure with one one? Yeah, target? I, I think it worked perfectly as a proof of principle. Yeah. So if you have, if you manage to find the cancer that has a single target that the cancer cells are dependent on it, mm-hmm. it's expressed on the surface, it's not expressed to normal cells, then go for it. Single targeting CAR T's should, in theory, do the job, yeah. uh, but that's not very common uh, across cancer. Uh, but uh, but the thing I think what people don't realize is CAR T's is not is not a single drug; is a whole category of drugs. The engineering possibilities of the of the CAR T's are endless. You can make them expressed two cars so that they can car- target two antigens. You can use logic gates so you can say if this antigen is present then look for that and that and only if all three are present kill the cell or if one plus two or one plus three are present then kill the cell uh, or you can make them express cytokines so that they can attract other immune cells to finish the job or to mm-hmm. to kill the other clones that so they don't express those antigens so the engineering possibilities are endless and uh, i think the only thing that stops the car t field from from expanding even further is the cost uh, that is associated with this technology I agree. I think the cost is an is an issue. Um, how much of the cost do you know is is just pharma charging buckets for it because it's expensive to develop? Because to me, the pipeline itself is fairly straightforward. There's, you know, the manufacturing cost should actually be fairly small. These aren't these aren't sophisticated, well, hugely sophisticated machines or hugely sophisticated bioreactors, are they? 
Uh, well, yes and no. So at the moment, there's a big debate between academic production of CAR-Ts, which in theory should be cheaper, or mm. commercial production of CAR-Ts by the pharmaceuticals. So the academic production that has been um, employed by, I, th I think, Spain, Russia, and some other countries, it's not much uh, cheaper. And uh, I think they calculate it to be around uh, $80,000 um, per, per treatment. But that didn't include didn't include any of the uh, salary costs of the people okay. that worked in the academic center. So if you take into account those, yeah. then you, you you're reaching the the uh, the price tag of the of the commercial products. I think it's probably I think in the research sector the academic centers have a lot to give, and they can advance the field a lot further. But uh, I, I, and that's only my opinion. I mean, I think the jury is still out, but I think the commercial sector has the ability to go through protocols, to go through red tape and all of these things much more efficiently and be able to produce the same product uh, with the same quality standards many times. And uh, as long as they accept a reasonable profit margin and they are not charging millions mm or uh, with 50% profit margin or something like that, I think I think that's how it's going to uh, go. And I think it all depends on the magnitude of benefit, doesn't it? You know, with a, you've got a 13-year-old with B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia who's got a two-thirds chance of being cured, then, and that therapy costs $300,000, then, you know, fair enough. I think if it's for myeloma and you're going to end up with a progression-free survival of, on average, 11 months, it's a completely different debate, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think in terms of cost, I think we have to put some things in perspective. So the amount of money that uh, the United States spent in the Afghanistan war, although it's totally different, either you could fund the CAR-T therapy every minute. They were spending around yeah. $200,000 per minute. Uh, or the amount of money that we spend in, in chewing gum, I heard it was something like uh, $500 million per month, no or way. the amount that some of the footballers make. I think what we need to do is to make people excited about science, because if people are excited about science, as as they are excited about music or football, uh, then it would be that they would be happy to support more money being spent in healthcare. Uh, but I think. If you see healthcare as something that is, is like your privilege, that you go to the NHS or wherever across the world and the government is obliged to treat you no matter the cost, that's not a very good way of, of appreciating the amount being spent there. Do you, I mean, do you think we're overstating the effect of CAR-Ts? Because clearly they don't work 100% of the time. Um, do you think there's a danger of perhaps giving false hope to people? Yes, there is. And uh, we can, one of the main criticism against CAR-Ts is that they, there has always been an intention, not an intention to treat analysis. Mm. So just for your listeners to explain, uh, an intention to treat analysis is like the gold standard when you do a trial, because you have to say, at this moment, I want to treat this patient with a CAR-T and you recruit him. So at the end, 
you include every patient that you said that you're going to treat and you see how many benefited or not. So with CAR-Ts, in many of the trials, the data that have been presented mm-hmm. were the patients that they actually received the product. And because it takes like a month or a month and a half for the, for the drug to be manufactured, uh, there, there are some patients that actually they don't even reach that point. So you try to give them CAR-T cells, but they progress too rapidly or the production fails, so they never receive the product. So that was one of the criticisms. The other criticism is that actually, as you said, it's not like 100% cure, it's around 40% or something in in that region for Mm. most diseases that they have been approved. Um, However, having said all that, I mean, we're talking about patients that in the trials, they have been multiply relapsed. They have been refractory to five, six lines of therapy. Now, these kind of patients, if you achieve a few months of improvement in survival, you, you, you open up a champagne. Uh, so it was unprecedented when the CAR-Ts managed to cure those patients. These are the type of patients that are enrolled in trials as like a last attempt as, as, as like uh, the, the last resort kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think there has been a, a precedent before that, that a new treatment works so well uh, from the get-go. Yeah, and obviously that power in multiply relapsed patients, you would hope would translate to even better, even better outcomes early on, wouldn't you? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, there was a recent trial uh, that uh, it showed that for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, uh, that the first line therapy is not good enough because the 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 risk of that lymphoma is very high. It's a poor, pro- the very high, poor like prognosis. Double hit, double hit. Double, risk, yeah, the, yeah, 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 double hit. So then they compared what is better doing CAR T cell therapy or going for an alternative chemotherapy and going for an uh, an autologous transplant. And uh, it, it it's only the interim results. The full paper is not out, but it looks like CAR Ts are way better. And uh, if you consider that it's a one-off treatment without all the morbidity associated with the transplant, uh, then I, th- I think it is just a non-brainer to go for that. I mean, I 100% think that's the way the way that medicine's going to go. I think it's really exciting. And, I, you know, that upfront use of CAR-T cells overcomes many of the other barriers to CAR-T, doesn't it? I, I know when patients get to the point where they need CAR-T and they've had multiple rounds of chemotherapy and they've, you know, their, their immune system has been really worked really hard. Um, those CAR T's, those T cell, their own T cells are, are pretty tired, aren't they? I don't know if you want yeah, to talk a little yeah. bit about T cell tiredness and exhaustion. Yeah, exactly. So what we talked about so far is what we call the autologous T cells. So we take them from, from the same patient. There are attempts to have allogeneic CAR T cells, but there are other problems associated with that. So obviously, if you have chemotherapy, your own T cells will not work as well. And there is good evidence now that the T cell fitness affects how well the CAR Ts will 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 uh, will will work uh so um, i mean to be honest i think i usually what i usually do when i start to think about something is have something like the best kind of scenario in my mind what is the best thing that we can achieve with something and i think for car is because i want people to imagine what what the good future may look like would be you are diagnosed with a cancer. Okay, we take a biopsy of that cancer and you look for some targets that you can use for your car You have those targets and you've identified like three or four targets that you think they are important. You take their T-cells, 
you manufacture them, you make them to express a car against those four targets, and you infuse them back, and you have instant immunity against against that humor. I think that's like probably, I don't know, 30, 40 years down the line, but the fact that they work so well makes us think that it's possible. I think that's definitely technically possible. I guess the, um, the barrier to that that I can see is the regulation, isn't it? You know, if you're going to really come up with personalized treatments essentially what you're proposing is is designing an individual therapy for a patient that that no other patient in a trial has ever had before either because it's it's, it's a new car t or it's a new combination of car t isn't it i think and it's individual for its cancer for its type of cancer you don't care about the cancer as long as you have a good way of finding a good target for the cars how how do you design a a a trial to prove that approach works Uh, I, I think it would be very hard, yeah. but I think the more funding, the more money uh, going into immunotherapies and engineering, because the other thing is uh, T-cells are not are not set in stone in terms of how we make them. The advancements in cell engineering have been uh, they have been uh, great over the last few years. We now have CRISPR-Cas9, uh, we have other things, and we can make the engineering even better. We can make it more complicated. Uh, so I think the more we use CARTIS, the more research is being done, we, we, we will get there. There is nothing in principle that would stop CARTIS from 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 killing any cancer. There is nothing in principle. It may be hard, but we can work to find the solutions. There is nothing in theory that would stop them from working. The idea that always intrigued me was not just attacking the tumor cells themselves, but also the vasculature and the the tumor microenvironment and various other things um, going on in in the cancer. Have you you heard much about those sorts of therapies? Yeah, that's actually very interesting. So microenvironment, especially in solid tumors, is what stops your native T cells from attacking the cancer. And uh, I think I think the more I read about about solid tumors microenvironment, about how they work, I mean, I will just say a few examples. So they plant. Uh, it's a, it's like a minefield for your native T cells. They plant some some TGF beta, which is a highly immunosuppressive molecule, in their microenvironment. So when a T cell approaches, it activates that. So TGF beta is released, and they become deactivated. I mean, it's like a minefield. Another thing they do is they cover themselves, like they camouflage, so their T cells with polysaccharides, so the T cells cannot cannot identify. Them. Another thing is they unlock, they express some of the genes that uh, we, everyone have uh, that are used during pregnancy so that the mother doesn't reject the fetus. So they unlock those genes so that they, the, the body becomes tolerant to the cancer cells uh, and the T cells won't attack them. Uh, so it's amazing how cancers work. And the more I read about them, my question is not when are we going to win against cancer is how has anyone with cancer ever been treated? I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, but having said all that, I think there are ways of dealing with those problems. And uh, for CARTIS, for example, there have been a recent paper in Nature from a few months ago when they targeted, they called them senolytic CAR-T cells, and they target uh, they targeted senescence. So they used those CAR-T cells to reverse fibrosis in the lung and in the liver. 
Uh, and by doing that, they reversed fib uh, lung fibrosis and uh, liver fibrosis in mice. Uh, so fibrosis is one of the tools that cancers employ, for example, to make it harder for T cells to traffic to the cancer site. So that there are ways also, because you can engineer the T cells, you can shield them from some of the immune suppressive elements that the cancers employ, like the PDL1 pathway. Uh, so yeah, it, it's hard. It's a hard problem, but you can kind of see that if you if you if you if we work hard, if we are clever enough, we should be able to overcome those challenges with time and, and effort. So, I mean, if I was to play a game and said, you know, how are we going to hit the hardest cancer to treat? And let's say it's pancreatic, you know, 30 mm. years time. Do you think that's going to be a single CAR T that can do everything? Do you think it's yeah. going to be an NK yeah. CAR T? Is it going to be gamma delta? Is it going to be a combination of CAR T and immunotherapy checkpoint? What, what do you think is the sort of the end game? How do you think that that cancer is going to be cured? Because I think we probably both agree now that within the next 50 years, by and large, 95, 98% of cancers are going to be hugely curable yeah yeah uh, i mean i will draw another parallel here and again apologies for confusing okay. your listeners uh so i will take you back to the chronic myeloid leukemia so chronic myeloid leukemia is probably the first cancer that has been treated with 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 a tablet essentially so chronic myeloid leukemia starts because of the bcr able mutation uh, that uh, that puts the, the the stem cells in overdrive to produce too many neutrophils so when you have that eventually you acquire more mutations and eventually you get to the stage of acute myeloid leukemia with many mutations and and you die so if you block that mutation at the very early states, when it's still just the BCR-ABLE with BCR-ABLE inhibitors, uh, then you cure the disease. Uh, and uh, we, with BCR-ABLE inhibitors now, patients with CML, they can, they can have a normal lifespan. So it looks like when the cancer becomes too complicated and it acquires too many mutations, it is very hard to treat. So you asked me about pancreatic cancer. I think one of the problems with pancreatic cancer is that the stage where it is diagnosed is already too complicated. Mm -hmm. It has acquired so many mutations. It has unlocked so many genes uh, that would prevent him from being uh, targeted. Uh, so it is hugely difficult. Uh, however, there are ways, for example, uh, tumor-free DNA is a new technology where you can detect a tumor DNA in the blood. And uh, I read recently that NHS is planning to roll this out in high-risk population, and they would be able to detect 50 cancers at a very early stage. This is Grail, so, isn't it? I think it's called Grail. Yeah, yeah, it could yeah. be that, yeah, yeah. Uh, so if you do that and you're able to detect pancreatic cancer before it becomes too complicated, before okay. it has a huge army of mutations and, uh, and immune-avoiding mechanisms, then you should be able to treat it. So it won't be, CAR T-cells won't be the holy grail, but it's kind of our, our nuclear arsenal to use against, against difficult cancers, as long as, as, we, as we use other methods like early detection with other methods okay that's um such an interesting conversation alex i'm so glad we're uh, we're talking so philosophically and and so speculatively which is the whole point of the podcast really it's not to get into the nitty-gritty details it's to talk about the whole philosophy of, of being a doctor and get excited for the future really and hopefully um, inspire more doctors to to go into research and do all of these things because we need more people 
Absolutely. And um, I guess we also need funding, don't we? Just tell me before you go about how you got into research and, and, and how you got your funding, because as I've alluded to already, it's, it's not an easy process, is it? No, it's not. Um, I mean, for me, it was kind of a personal journey. I always wanted to be involved in research. I want to see how all these drugs are made. I want to understand more and have a go at, 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 at uh, having making an advancement in science. Um, I think the tricky bit is that, I mean, I graduated in, in Greece, so it may be dif different in the UK, but medical school doesn't prepare you uh, to to work in 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 a lab or in 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 a research field, um, it, it it has to be kind of a personal pursuit, um, and I I think I think it doesn't necessarily have to like put you in the lab and learn you how to run a PCR. I'm not talking about something like that, but I'm talking about make you learn how, how to think, uh, how to have scientific thinking, because. A lot, a lot of things in medical school is about memorization. Even, even in graduate like memberships for colleges and all that. I mean, what do we do? We memorize facts. Uh, we memorize percentages, and we are asked to select the best out of four or five uh, in a multiple uh, choice question. And I think that doesn't doesn't advance your scientific thing because when you, when we are young i mean i feel when i was when i was 18 my brain plasticity was great i mean i could learn anything uh but then i become more and more rigid uh yeah. more rusty uh, i should say uh so it becomes more difficult so i think learning to think outside the box learning to have critical thinking and um, also being able to adjust easily and become versatile if you're gonna make a career move and work in a lab for a few years, I think these are important skills that we should learn. Along with statistics, which is another thing that we should learn more. I think uh, in medicine, if you know how to do statistics, you're on a different level already. Yeah, I think just understanding partly, you know, the statistics side is important because you want to be able to understand the, res the, the 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 evidence, don't you? You know, there's so there's there's a real push, I think, from pharmaceutical companies to to design trials that really pull the wool over your eyes. And you know, CAR T CAR T cells are not are not devoid of that. You know, there's, there are single our, our evidence is predominantly based on single arm um, trials that don't report everything you need to know. And I think having a, having a critical eye is extremely important for even, you know, for, for run of the mill DGH consultants, it's, it's hugely mm. important mm. because you need to understand the evidence to recommend it to your patients. Don't you? Um, yeah, I think, I think by the way, your title is great beyond the guidelines. Uh -huh. uh, oh, don't just read the guidelines. I think, yeah. I think that's a great title uh, because many of the guidelines actually, they are not based on the highest level of evidence. Uh, maybe the main bullet points are, but some of the lesser important bullet points, they are just consensus opinion, yeah. uh, which the lowest uh, degree of evidence. And so much we do, and com coming back to transfusion, so much we do is 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 not well evidence based. And in fact, there's probably evidence of harm. You know, FFP for liver disease, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which are the you know perennial pet hate of mine when I'm on call. Um, these things are incredibly important to understand. I guess there's there's two rungs to the research side there isn't there's, there's having that understanding and there's having the having the balls to go on and do it yourself which uh i think is incredibly admirable i think that for me trying to get into research the hardest thing is is just constant rejection 
um, is just constantly being shot down. You put your heart and soul into something, you put your heart and soul into an application that you've designed from scratch and, and for whatever reason, you, you can't get the funding and it's, it is relentless. It's, it's tough, but um, if you want to make a difference and you want to want to drive forward humanity's understanding of the body and biology and whatever else, then mm. you just have to, you just have to keep driving for it. Don't you? It, it is hard. I mean, I have to highlight the, the importance that supervisors play and mentors play. I mean, I have been lucky enough to have uh, Claire Odi, Martin Pule, Mike Murphy in Oxford. They have been all amazing. I feel that they guided me in a very good way that eventually leads to uh, to success or or personal success i'm not talking about professional success necessarily but at least i'm doing what what i want to do mm. uh, and uh, i think as you said it you have to be relentless and uh, also doing science it's not profitable for a doctor we have to say uh you have to take a pay cut to do science uh while working as a clinician uh doing nights doing weekends mm. it, it can be highly profitable i mean obviously we're not earning millions, but it's more profitable than research. Uh, and it's even worse for molecular biologists or, or other fields when to do a PhD, to devote their, themselves to science, uh, they have to learn to live with one-year funding or two-year funding, yeah. earning something in the region of 30K or something. Uh, so science is definitely not, not something to do if you want to become rich. If I was designing the, the science funding from the from the scratch again, I don't think I'd design it like we have it. You know, I think that year that that short termism of a year's funding, two years funding is just it's just awful. It's so treacherous for someone that has got a family and a mortgage, and yeah. and doesn't want to move cities every three years. It's it's so difficult, and I think it's so difficult for people to do good work because you're constantly just chasing that next grant. Um, and even I think a lot of a lot of people in the states, especially, will be submitting grant proposals for stuff for, for to achieve data that they've already got, because they know how competitive it is, and they need to be able to show that they're achieving their their grant aims um, later on. And they found that that's the least stressful way to do it. And it's such a shame. I'm a massive fan of blue sky thinking and and being very. Um, but 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 I think that's why I said we need to get people excited excited about that because yeah. when people are excited they would be happy to pay for it as they are happy to pay to hundred pounds towards Premier League game. I mean yeah. I'm a big fan of Premier League, but <laughs> I mean I, I don't understand the the costs is yeah. they are astronomical. So I mean if people are because think about it I mean you have a kid who's dying from leukemia and you can take his or her t-cells engineer them and cure his leukemia i mean other than obviously uh, being something very good for for the kids health i mean that's just plain amazing that's that's extraordinary and i think we should we should take pride for what we have achieved but we should communicate that to the people uh, and i don't think we do that well enough okay well, that was an awesome, wide-ranging conversation. I'm so pleased we've done it. Um, you're such a smart guy. And all in a second language as well. It's uh, pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Richard. And uh, well done for this podcast. I'm, I'm sure you'll get uh, many listeners and uh, uh, the, the, you, you will do your bit for, to get people excited about science and, and medicine. 
Well, if I can find another ten Alex Rampottis to come on, then uh, and be so eloquent as you, <laughs> then uh, I'll be in a I'll be in a good place. I think that's awesome. Um, so um, sure will. <laughs> good luck with the PhD, Alex, and uh, let's have you on again in a year's time if I've not completely lost the plot and gone rambling about space time and, and things, <laughs> uh, which is possibly on the cards. You never know. All right, awesome. Well, good luck. Good luck to you. Thanks, Richard. Talk soon. Well, well, thanks to Alex for indulging my optimistic brain about the future of human health and disease. I think CAR-T really does have a bright future. Clearly a long way to go, um, but certainly um, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of cause for optimism going forwards. Um, this is a shame, shameless self-plug. If you do want to know a bit more about CAR-T and want to do a bit of reading, um, feel free to download my little Fast Facts book that I published with Carga um, earlier this year. It's called CAR-T Fast Facts um, by Richard Booker and Ankit Kansagra. Um, and that's available as a free download on the on the Carga website. So head over there and uh, and download the book. It's only five to 10,000 words long. So a bit of light bedtime reading for you. So I'm going to be recording loads more podcasts in the coming weeks. Uh, starting with Dr. David Sutton, who's a hemostasis and thrombosis consultant at uh, University Hospital North Staffordshire, which is where I work. David's um, awesome, he's young, he's keen, he's energetic, and he's an absolute expert on the DOAX. So we're going to have two discussions, one on DOAX and one on the reversal agents for DOAX, which is all going to be changing very soon. So change, stay tuned for that, I'll get that uploaded in the next week or two. And uh, looking forward to you uh, commenting and, and leaving me some reviews. Don't just read the guidelines, it's for education and entertainment only and should not be treated as medical advice. I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of the content, but if you do notice any errors, feel free to send me some constructive criticism on Twitter. Don't just read the guidelines, is recorded and produced by Richard Booker and music is by Scott Holmes. <laughs>